0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we'll talk with Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown about politics in history and about what Joe Biden can learn from his victory in Ohio, running for Senate two years ago, where he won by eight points in a state Hillary Clinton lost by six points just two years before. Later in the show, we will celebrate John Lennon on what would have been his 80th birthday. That's tomorrow, October 9th. We'll talk about his work to end the war in Vietnam and his plans to campaign to get young people to register to vote in the 1972 election, which led Richard Nixon to order him deported in 1972 And we'll listen to some historic interviews with his activist comrades, Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman. And of course, we'll also talk about COVID-19 and Trump's greatest crime, failing to take action to fight the pandemic when all the scientists and doctors were telling him exactly how to do it. That's the subject of a powerful new documentary by Alex Gibney. It's called Totally Under Control. More than 7 million people have watched the trailer since it was released on Friday. It opens next Tuesday on many TV streaming platforms. Our TV critic Ella Taylor will talk about it. First up, Harold Meyerson on last night's vice presidential debate. Harold, of course, is editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, vice presidential debates usually don't have much effect on the voting. And of course, that's especially true this year when people have had plenty of time to decide whether they want four more years of Donald Trump. But this VP debate was overshadowed by the age of both candidates and in particular by Trump having come down with COVID-19. So so we wonder what if trump gets really sick and mike pence has to take over as president before january 20th and what if biden after taking office on january 20th has health problems that require kamala harris to take over last night we had a chance to think about that what did we see what did you see
1: well yes i mean more than usual this was uh viewed as a a test of two people who were sort of on deck as it were, in baseball terminology. Um, I actually don't think Trump, uh, Trump-Pence has much of a chance of being the nominee in, in, in 2024, 20, uh, uh, unless Trump somehow, which I, I doubt, is reelected and then uh, kicks off uh, in the course of his second term. I don't, uh, Pence is clearly anathema to the old establishment Republicans, and for the Trump, uh, the Trumpified Republican Party, I don't think he really rings as many bells as as, as folks like Tom Cotton or uh, Tucker Carlson or or Josh Hawley. On the other hand, uh, Harris certainly would be uh, the establishment Democratic choice. If Biden served one term and elected not to run for re-election, there would be some probably progressive challengers to her in a Democratic primary. So in a certain sense, it was and was not at one and the same time kind of the the first event, as some said, of the 2024 campaign. You know, Harris had sort of three uh, warning uh, signs flashing in front of her throughout the debate. One was, You're up by 10 points. Don't do anything that's really controversial. The second was, you're a woman. Don't do anything that's really controversial. The third was, you're an African-American. Don't do anything that's really controversial. And she didn't. Uh, She's shown in uh, the debates during the Democratic primaries and uh, throughout her career, a capacity to really uh, deliver zingers, uh, you know, to... uh, underscore the uh, uh, the folly or shortcomings of whatever her opponent was saying. Uh, the Zingers were unzunned, as it were, last night. She, she I think, made a clearly <laughs> effective attack on the Trump administration's failure to deal with the pandemic. That was her central message. Uh, there was no real way that uh, Pence could defend that, so he chose kind of the filibuster solution. He just kept talking and talking and talking into into Harris's time, uh, which I think probably didn't endear him to uh, many, uh, assuming the Trump campaign realizes it has to win back a large number of women who are swing voters. I I I think all the mansplaining did not work wonders in that regard. Uh, I I think uh, Kamala accomplished her mission Uh, She got her critique across. She didn't really uh, come off as uh, unduly combative, which apparently is a bad thing in a woman and a bad thing in an African-American, though it's perfectly fine if you're male and white. And uh, uh, I would expect that this debate will have little to any effect on uh, people's voting preferences.
0: You know, I thought beforehand, Pence has a really impossible task. There, There is no way you can defend Trump on his failures in facing the pandemic. So I almost felt a little sorry for him. There wasn't much he could really do about it except lie. But then his lies were so irritating and so brazen. I, I lost whatever sympathy I might have had for the impossible task that he faced.
1: Well, they were irritating, brazen, and long-winded. Uh, the, the long-winded is, only, is, the, is, is the only thing that could make it worse than irritating and brazen, but it did. I mean, not only were they ridiculous, but they were ridiculous to the point of cutting into uh, uh, Kamala Harris's times. Let me interrupt you with an irritating and brazen lie. It's not <laughs> enough that I said it in my own time. So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I think he uh, labored under a handicap, and he made it worse.
0: On the one hand, he was condescending uh, to both the, his opponent and the woman moderator, uh, which was infuriating, but he was also kind of boring and lifeless and inexpressive. And uh, it's kind of an interesting combination to be both infuriating and boring at the same time. It is.
1: And I mean, well, the boring is who he is you know, beyond the usual level of distortion that Republicans have to go through when defending things like tax cuts that really only benefit the top 1%, uh, to have to descend to a level of deception uh, that being Donald Trump's defender requires, uh, you know, is is much worse. And then to compound that with just sort of droning on and on and on and droning uh, straight through, uh, you know, uh, Susan Page, the moderator's repeated attempts to get him to adhere to time limits, just just compounded it. So I'm I'm not surprised that the post-debate polling shows... What it basically shows is uh, people believe Harris won by a margin more or less equivalent to the presidential preference margins in which Biden now leads Trump by maybe 10 points, maybe even a dozen.
0: So... If Pence had an impossible task, as you suggest, Kamala Harris had a difficult one and that she couldn't be the angry black woman, but she also had to be presidential, the kind of person who could be the Democrats' candidate in four years. And of course, some some commentators afterwards even wrote that. At TheNation.com, Joan Walsh wrote, quote, I think I finally saw our first female president, who also happens to be of Black and East Asian Indian descent, close quote. Do you think that kind of perspective on last night is going too far?
1: Maybe a little, but I don't think we saw the full Kamala Harris last night. I think we saw Kamala working under peculiar constraints. Now, somewhat uh, like Barack Obama during his presidency, the racism, and in this case, the sexism that abounds in our land, is is always going to place some constraints on her. But I think she acquitted herself certainly well enough so that she certainly uh, could be seen as a plausible president. Uh, I think you know, it, you can't disaggregate her perpetual almost smile from the the, the burdens under which uh, society forced her to labor, but she certainly came across as critical but not disagreeable, which I think was the tightrope she had to walk. She did that, and I, I, I think she certainly made the case simply by comporting herself reasonably well and making some cases reasonably well, though not going in for the kill, uh, that, yeah, she's certainly a
0: plausible president. Well, let's talk about Trump's week. How bad has the last week been for Trump? Or, or let me put this another way. Has there ever been another candidate in your lifetime who had as bad a week as Trump has had this past week? Boy, <laughs> <laughs> I
1: have to think long and hard uh to come up with one. Uh it, it probably not and uh you know what what dominates the last week are two huge unforced errors. The first being his conduct in the first presidential debate, the second being his statement that he didn't want to have any stimulus until after he was elected, in which case he almost thinking maybe he's saying, if you don't vote for me, I'm not going to approve this at all. Both of which have, you know, I I think are, you know, shooting yourself way higher than uh, way higher than the foot. Uh, (laughs) I I, I think those are really, you know, clearly damaging mistakes. Uh, His polling went south after uh, the first debate. And the market went south, which is his one metric for how the economy is doing, when he said he wouldn't back any stimulus until uh, after he was elected, which maybe never, of course. So um, uh, yeah, he, he had a crummy week and that is entirely apart from his coming down uh, with COVID-19, with all of the masklessness that he exhibited uh, for the last uh, really six months for the White House event that apparently laid low half his staff and Lord knows who else, including, you know, a number of Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee, which will be uh, having confirmation hearings uh, for Judge Barrett next week. So, yeah, he had a, a majorly crummy week.
0: But then he went, on. Uh, he made a video the afternoon before the vice presidential debate where he's standing and wearing his, you know, blue suit and red tie, and maybe it's the Rose Garden or something, and he says that getting COVID-19 was, quote, a blessing from God, close quote, which I think the other people who have gotten sick don't feel the same way. It seems like this is, uh, you know, the steroids talking. If you look at the, the side effects of the steroids that he's taking, high on the list is euphoria and mania. So, so he is living in kind of a a, a drug induced state of euphoria, which is not that good, really, for the rest of us.
1: Probably not. I mean, what he was living in even before that was not very good for the rest of us. But to compound <laughs> oh, that's it, true. Uh, to compound it with euphoria related uh, delusions, uh, has only got to make matters worse. Yeah, I, I, I to the extent that his getting the disease was somehow exceptional. I don't think it was really that God sent it to him. It's that he got medical treatment, the likes of which all Americans should be entitled to, but virtually none of them get. And I don't think God had anything to do with it.
0: Well, he did say in that video that he wants everyone to get the same medical treatment he did, which is a very generous thing since he got the best medical treatment of anyone in the world. Uh, On the other hand, you were probably about to remind us that he's trying to abolish and has spent the last four years trying to abolish Obamacare, the only source of medical insurance for 20 or 30 million people. Uh, It seems there's an inconsistency there. It seems
1: there is. And uh, not to mention that uh, Obamacare also enables the 100 million Americans who have pre-existing conditions not to have to pay extra uh, to the insurance companies for those pre-existing conditions. So yeah, there is an inconsistency there. And it should be noted that uh, when Susan Page, the moderator in this week's vice presidential debate, asked Vice President Pence about what the administration's plan, which they say they have, Uh, what their plan is uh, to cover pre-existing conditions. He never actually got around to answering that question. So yet uh, a a further moment of emperor wearing no clothes, but getting goddamn good treatment at Walter Reed Hospital.
0: Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. Next up, talking politics and history with Sherrod Brown. One note, this interview was recorded before Trump was hospitalized for COVID-19. Of course, Sherrod Brown is the senior senator from Ohio, first elected in 2006. He was reelected in 2018. He won by seven points in a state Hillary Clinton had lost by eight points just two years earlier. Now he's got a new book out in paperback. It's called Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. It's an honor and a pleasure to say. Sherrod Brown, welcome back.
2: Thanks. Good to be back on your show. Thank you. Thanks for speaking out as a progressive.
0: Well, at the end of Desk 88, you talk about your own re-election in 2018. And let's say it again, you won by seven points in the state. Hillary had lost by eight points just two years earlier. We have an important question about that. What are the lessons for Joe Biden in Ohio in 2020 from the experiences of Hillary in 2016 and you in 2018?
2: Well, first of all, elections elections are all about whose side are you on. And Trump came to Ohio in 16 and convinced enough voters, uh, stunningly in many ways, enough voters that um, he was on their side. And he put out a phony populism that more and more people understand, more and more people are on to. Uh, and I, I Biden, Biden needs to do what he's mostly doing, and that is talk about the dignity of work run a campaign and promise to run a government through the eyes of workers. Make that contrast of the dignity of work with, with Trump's betrayal of workers, where Trump has opposed the minimum wage, taken away overtime for 100,000 Ohio workers, uh, taking away the unemployment benefit, $600 a week, that kept hundreds of thousands of Ohioans out of poverty. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Ohioans lost their unemployment August 1st as they did elsewhere in the country. How are they gonna pay? They can't find jobs in this economy. How are they gonna pay their 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 rent or their mortgage? How are they gonna pay their gas bill? How are they gonna provide food for their kids when they lost that $600 a week that, that really kept them out of poverty? So, because elections are about contrast and Biden has been a friend of workers and Trump has betrayed them. Uh, I, there are And there are way more examples than that. That's how to make that contrast with Trump. And I think you'll see enough of the Trump 16 voters move away from him towards Biden because of that.
0: And I imagine Joe Biden knows all about how you won in 2018 after Hillary lost in 2016. Well, Biden, Biden is a
2: smart guy, and Biden's campaign has looked a lot in Ohio. And I, I think you can see in Biden, I mean, Biden at the Democratic Convention, Joe, and the vice president, a number of others used the word dignity, dignity of work, the human dignity, the way Dr. King did. I mean, the, the term dignity of work is, is, is hardly my invention. Uh, it was um, Pope Leo is my first coming upon that term, who was the labor pope at the turn of the last century. And, and then Dr. King used the term dignity of work repeatedly. And King, King understood uh, the, the, the overlap of, of civil rights and workers and labor rights. And I mean, look where he was when he was assassinated. He was in Memphis Fighting for the most, some of the most um, oppressed workers uh, in the country. Workers mo- almost entirely black, or maybe all black, not paid well, few benefits, terrible working conditions. A couple of workers had been killed. I don't remember precisely, but but I think killed by a garbage compactor. Only in the few weeks leading up to the strike. Uh, so Dr. King understood dignity of work and as, I mean, well, interestingly, back um, your, your U.S. Senator, Kamala Harris, soon after she was in office, she and I were sitting on the Senate floor one day after the Dr. King holiday, and we were talking about our speeches with Dr. King holidays in our, uh, she, I think, in LA, I'm not sure, and I was in Cleveland, and, and we were sitting on the floor, and she sat in the Senate, and she, we're talking, she said, what'd you talk about? I talked about the dignity of work and I was quoting King. And, you know, about a week later, she walks up to me, she hands me a book. The name of the book was All Work Has Dignity Mm. and or All Labor Has Dignity. I think it was All Labor Has Dignity. It was a compilation of King's speeches to unions and to worker groups um, in the last 10 years of his life. And King, in the last years of his life, he was more and more intertwined with the labor movement. Much of the labor movement, very supportive, not all the labor movement, it would be now, but uh, times have changed in some ways for the better.
0: Well, the um, the new paperback of your book Desk eighty eight has an afterword. Seems like it was written last week. It takes up the question of what the way you put it is when the stars next align for progressives to be in power in Washington, and that may well happen on January twentieth. The polls say Biden is likely to win the election. The Democrats will take control of the Senate. Uh, so let us assume Biden takes the oath of office on January 20th and a new Democratic Senate is seated. What are your priorities for that day, that week, that month?
2: Well, the priorities, I think, of mainstream Democrats, and that's from Bernie Sanders uh, and Elizabeth Warren and me and Joe Biden and, and uh, you know Kamala Harris and a number of others, is we need, we need to move quickly. Uh, we need to do things that will give people benefits immediately, such as minimum wage, allowing Medicare buy-in at 55, uh, the giving you know, unions a right to organize. We need, we need to do, we need to expand democracy. And that means the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. It means ending the redistricting abuses. It means giving people, restoring democracy that much of it has been compromised. Um, but I, I, I think of it this way, that, that we, that there are three great moral issues of our times. Climate change that your state has been so afflicted with, not just now, but other times. Climate change, race, racial disparities and income inequality. And I think Democrats will govern always with those three things. And that that's immigration reform, it's a higher minimum wage, it's a tax system, the child tax credit where low income people Get a better deal from their government instead of tax breaks for the rich. We do tax breaks for for lower income working families. We know who the essential workers are, and the pandemic has been the great revealer. It's shown who the essential workers are in this country. They're mostly women. They're disproportionately people of color, and they're mostly low paid. And they they you know they drive the buses. They take care of they they change the linen at the hospital. They they work in grocery stores and drug stores. They ex- are exposed to the virus, not making a lot of money. Then they go home, anxious about whether they're exposing their families. They have to They have to be at the front of the line this time.
0: Uh, I want to talk about your book, Desk 88, which is a wonderful history of American politics seen from the vantage point of all the of. Different senators who've occupied your desk on the on the Senate floor, some amazing people occupied your desk, and we have some things we need to learn from their uh, experiences. One of them is George McGovern, of course, a hero of ours. He was right about pretty much everything, especially the war in Vietnam when he ran in 1972. But he was also the biggest loser in the modern history of the Democratic Party. He 72 he carried. Only Massachusetts and the District of Columbia and really Nixon beating McGovern in 72 was much worse than Trump beating Hillary because Hillary, of course, won the popular vote by 3 million votes. McGovern lost by almost 18 million votes. I know one of the, your earliest experience in politics, you were a teenager in 1972, was that you worked on the McGovern campaign. What was your experience? And looking back on that, why do you think McGovern lost so badly? I
2: would, I would choose to talk about the, the great and the positive things McGovern did, but I'll I'll try to answer that. I, I was a teen, I was 19, I didn't know much about, I mean, I thought McGovern was gonna win right up until election day. So it tells you how much I really understood politics. But I mean, cause I could see then he was right. He was right on a better tax system. He was right from a progressive viewpoint. Nixon, well, Nixon cheated in the campaign. We know that. Uh, Nixon um, also, you know, he, he played to the racial fears. He does some of the things Trump does. Um, he learned from from Wallace's '68 campaign. Nixon learned how to play to bigotry and race, and started something called the Southern Strategy, as you remember. But it's a different time now, so I don't I don't make that comparison because Nixon won, that Trump's going to because I think it's a very different a very different country. But McGovern. But McGo- McGovern was a guy that um, he really is, he will be remembered as he helped us as, as he was, um, he was JFK's uh, food uh, ambassador, I think. And um, when he met Pope John the 23rd, McGovern told me this, although I've also seen it in writing. He said, John the 23rd greeted him and said, when the Lord, when you meet the Lord, you can say you help feed the poor. And um, that was probably the, I mean, you don't get many compliments that, like that, whether you're religious or not, the Pope's saying you fed the poor, right? And McGovern devoted much of his life to all these programs, including near the end of his career. It, we, we as a nation had a real commitment. Again, we pulled back because of Trump, but we had a real commitment to provide every possible ch- child in school and the developing world with at least one hot meal a day. And my wife, Connie, and I were in Haiti um, in a in a clinic working with some people, and I saw one of those feeding programs, and the kids, I mean, it it was one really good hot meal they got every day, and that was something they hadn't had. McGovern McGovern went to his grave knowing he did that.
0: Well, your chapter on McGovern has has what I think is my favorite quote in the whole book. You quote Tip O'Neill, the longtime head of House Democrats, who said the McGovern, quote, I can count a hundred congressmen who are here because of your 1972 campaign, close quote, the biggest loss the Democrats had suffered in modern history. Please explain that.
2: And you know, I wasn't in Congress, and so I wasn't one of the hundred, but there were all kinds of people that started their political, that, that were interested in politics because McGovern pulled them in. They, they had maybe been, they had protested the war, they were interested in the environment the first Earth Day took place two years earlier in 1970. They had come out of the civil rights movement and McGovern was their entry vehicle into political action, into electoral politics. And that, that meant that a whole lot of people that had worked with McGovern that had the same crushing election night that, that all of us had that were involved. And they decided, you know, This isn't the end. This is the beginning. They then ran. Two years later, I ran for the legislature um, and got elected in Ohio. And I I don't I don't know if I would have run if it weren't for McGovern, but it certainly made a big impact on me that electoral politics is something that that I can do and that we need people. We need progressive, outspoken, progressive activists to do it.
0: When we. Look at Donald Trump. We think of the Republican Party that he's changed so drastically, and we wonder, why haven't more Republicans said, this is not what we want our party to be? There aren't very many Republicans who've changed their minds about the trajectory of their party. Your book has some fascinating examples of people in politics who did change their minds. They're really my favorite people in your book. Starting with Hugo Black from Alabama, elected to the Senate in 1926, he he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, but he changed his mind in and changed sides in the great battles of the 1930s. It's a fabulous story, and thank you for telling it. So, summarize it briefly for us now.
2: Well, okay. he uh, Black when he Black was a trial lawyer and a judge and uh, what they called a judge in in Birmingham, and he. Um, when he ran for office, he said, I have to choose between the big mules. The big mules were the power companies, the steel companies, the mining companies, the people that controlled Alabama. And blacks weren't voting in those days, as of course you know. Um, he had to choose between the big mules and the KKK. He said those were the only two choices to run for office. I, I don't know that that was true, but that's the way he looked at it. And he, um, he disclaimed his membership, he never denied it. he quickly renounced the Klan. Um, he still wasn't particularly good on race until the mid-30s, until his second term. And he was—he um, probably did more for workers than anybody in the Senate, except for um, Senator Wagner of New York in the minimum wage and the eight-hour workday and, 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 and collective bargaining. So I, I heard what you said at the beginning of that question about Republicans now. Uh, and I, I, um, I, wrote a, um, I wrote in the, in the, in the afterword that I wrote this past summer, um, I spoke about impeachment and the virus. And um, watching, watching a bunch of my spineless colleagues, uh, history will treat them pretty cruelly as they deserve. That, they, that even, even when this week or two weeks ago, when Trump so showed such disrespect for, uh, for our fallen troops, for soldiers that died in France or died wherever, that Trump showed such res- disrespect for them, I heard hardly a Republican criticize it. They are, they are afraid, I wrote in the impeachment part of that last chapter, they were driven by fear. They were afraid Trump would call them a name or campaign against them or show up at their state and say something negative. And they have shown amazing cowardice in, in the face of this immoral racist president. And I, I, don't, I don't know if it will cost them politically. Some of them live in states that they could not lose, but some of them don't. And I think I know history will treat them badly.
0: Last question. Of course, the 2020 presidential election, everyone I know is full of anxiety about what Trump and the Republicans are doing to prevent Democrats from voting, to screw up the count, to undermine and confuse the results. And they're even more worried about what Trump might do after he loses in that period between November and January 20th. Are you at all optimistic we're going to get through that period with our democracy intact we're going to get
2: through it. he's going to lose and he's going to cry foul play he may try to you know they'll the democrats are more likely to vote early republicans are more likely to vote election day the initial numbers may show trump winning he's going to declare victory he's going to say democrats um that these votes are all corrupt and rigged and he's going to do all that stuff and in the end, the Secret Service and the military will remove him from his office if he doesn't move himself by January 20th. I feel that we're going to beat him. I, I'm concerned about his cheating and his lying. We've never seen a president do anything like this. Nixon, at his worst, wasn't this. But it means, it means two things. It means we've got to really we've really got to be acting the kind of activists and get every possible vote including those of you that live in states that are clearly going our way or clearly going the other way, that that you do all you can with any relatives, younger people, especially in other states or even in your home state. Um, And it means that um, we've got to be vigilant, but it it also means vote early, that we should vote. um, We should vote, if you could vote in person early, a month before the election, like you can in Ohio, go vote early or send in your absentee ballot. And the post office absolutely can handle these ballots I have no doubt is in spite of the, the um, idiot that's now running the post office, the political hack, there's no doubt they can, the, the postal service, the workers I meet with, postal workers pretty often, they, there is no doubt they will run this election. This may these mail-in votes the way they need to, I'll give you one set of numbers. Country of 300 million people, right? The postal service handles 400 million pieces of mail per day, 400 million. The most people that would vote absentee would be 150 million over the space of a month. So you've got, they handle $400 million a day. They can sure handle an extra $150 million over a month's period. So Postal Service will do it right. We should vote early,
0: uh, and we should be vigilant about Trump's cheating. Sharon Brown, of course, he's the senior senator from Ohio. His new book out in paperback is Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. It's a terrific book. Thank you, Senator Brown.
2: It was a pleasure to be on again. Good to see you again. Thanks. Be safe.
0: It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in LA on KPFK and online anytime you want it at TrumpWatchPodcast.com. The coronavirus pandemic, we could have done it right. The fact that we didn't is Donald Trump's worst crime, and it's the subject of a powerful new documentary from Alex Gibney called Totally Under Control. For comment, we turn, of course, to Ella Taylor. She's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the LA Weekly, the New York Times, and at NPR.org. Ella, welcome back.
3: Good to be here, John.
0: Well, I saw that the trailer for Alex Gibney's new film, Totally Under Control, came out on Friday by coincidence, the day Trump went into the hospital to be treated for COVID-19. And the trailer then got more than 6 million viewers in its first 72 hours.
3: They added a a closing credit line that said um, two days after this movie was completed, (laughs) Um Donald Trump tested <laughs> positive for COVID. <laughs>
0: so. so tell us tell us about totally under control.
3: Well, its its style and and method is uh, is very similar to Agents of Chaos, uh, which Alex Gibney made also. Um, which is to say that it's an incredibly thorough. Um, I don't want to say comprehensive because the horrors are <laughs> increasing daily. Um, but it's it has three directors. One is Alex Gibney, uh, Suzanne Hillinger, and Ophelia Harootunyunyan. Um, and a huge team of researchers, editors. There were four editors on the film, which is something. Um, And uh, the screenplay, uh, the voiceover is is, uh, Alex Gibney. And you also get some insight into the enormous challenges of doing a talking head for a visual documentary under COVID because you see them in front of these plastic curtains and so on. There is a huge amount in this film And if you thought you knew everything about how uh, the bungling of the COVID crisis came about, you don't. (laughs) Uh, But it's all brought together very uh, smoothly by um, Gibney and his co-directors. And it, it really illustrates the how and the when and the why of three different areas in relation to the handling of the pandemic which we don't need to say was has been absolutely appalling but i'll say it anyway one is uh, the politicization of a public health health crisis another is the adjacent um, contempt for science and and all those who represent the scientific community And the third thing is the absolute rank incompetence and bungling of an administration that was crippled by constant turnover and uh, the appointment of people who have no skills in the area that they're supposed to be administrating administering excuse me i'm getting becoming american <laughs> it spans the the beginning of of covid in wuhan and the united states and and south korea it uses a lot of footage a lot of interviews some of which you'll see uh, you've seen before and uh, his star witness is dr rig Rick Bright, um, who was with the NIH, National Institutions of Health, until two days ago. He's the whistleblower who uh, pushed back against the administration that was just ignoring um, all the pre-planning for the COVID virus. And he was sidelined into a completely irrelevant occupation. And this Tuesday, it's not in the film, but I just learned that that he resigned this Tuesday and has uh, come out with a, lo- a lot more details, whistleblowing details about just how this operation was bungled and, in fact, never really got off the ground. And he's especially strong on the ignoring of um, the pleas from scientists, uh, immunologists, and others who had predicted very accurately through mathematical modeling and and such the path of the the pandemic, and it turns out with astonishing accuracy. Um, There was also um, a woman named Nancy... Um, who very early on got the chance to sound off about how dreadful this was going to be and was immediately fired.
0: So I have a question about how they made the film. I know the key to it is the talking heads of the whistleblowers, the insiders, some of whom have resigned in protests over what happened. And that's sort of intercut with the now familiar footage of Trump saying nothing to worry about. It's going to be a miracle when it goes away. The, the title, totally under control. This is something else that Trump has said, which they show. But that means you have basically lots of talking heads, talking heads of the experts who are telling the truth and talking heads of Trump being, you know, being, being Trump. How do they make a movie out of this that you actually want to watch for an hour?
3: Well, this was uh, way more than an hour, closer to two.
1: <laughs>
0: okay.
3: <laughs> um, but uh, this is something that Gibney is very good at. He's an extremely professional documentarian. I think, as I said before, I had some issues with the uh, you know, sensationalism that, of some of his earlier documentaries, but this is extremely sober. Uh, and he's very good at intercutting... Um, you know, footage, news footage um, of the pro- progress of the pandemic. He has an international perspective here. So um, it's, uh, there's pictures of, of Wuhan, um, of the wet markets, for example, where the, uh, the virus probably started. Uh, and in particular, he, he takes um, takes us to South Korea. Um, they found that they had their first documented case the same day as the United States and as we know handled it in a different way. This made me giggle a little bit because it reminded me um, of a contrasting view in Bong Joon-ho's horror comedy, The Host, uh, which shows Korean officials completely bungling the SARS epidemic, uh, which of course was not an epidemic here. But nonetheless, this time uh, South Korea handled the situation very well, including when uh, they had a, an increase. One thing I didn't know was that the, the South Korean second wave uh, resulted f- largely from um, attendance at mega churches, <laughs> of which they have many. And they shut them down very quickly, and as a result, um, the incidents of, of the statistics show a, a decrease. Some highlights, also in addition to that, um, was uh, I, you know perhaps the movie. One of the movie's worst sinners is Jared Kushner, who tried very hard to to get the private sector to um, assume uh, the day-to-day operations, and when he failed. Blame the government for their failure. Um, Of course, Trump himself, uh, and, uh, you know, don't let it dominate you. Uh, Meanwhile, it's dominating his entire White House, as far as we can tell. There is some criticism of the Obama administration for flaws in response to the the Ebola um, crisis, but they then responded by creating a special department for pandemics which um, again, I didn't know. Was I knew it was dissolved by the Trump administration, but it was specifically dissolved under John Bolton, <laughs> um, who of course has since then has tried to portray himself as a saint to, uh, in opposition to um, to Trump. I mean, I'm glad he's there, but uh, he's no saint. That's for sure. Um, but the major overall um, thing of it uh, thesis is is the two competing and radically different narratives. On the one hand, the doctors and the scientists, Anthony Fauci, doing the best he could to stay in front of the public, um, with you know while trying to deal with on, on a day to day basis with Trump's press conferences, and on the other hand, the politicians especially Trump, who kept saying, we've never seen anything like this. And that's where the movie is particularly strong, because it provides very strong visual as well as verbal evidence that we've seen this many times before, um, beginning with the 1918 um, flu pandemic, which caused, you know, absolute uh, disaster. So it's it's very good uh, both at evidence and at refutation, but of course the ultimate uh, result of this is seven million infected and two hundred thousand deaths and counting, Um, the major things that were bungled were the testing, um, federal funding. I mean, you you see this footage, very dramatic footage of the states desperately trying to get PPE on their own because they got no federal funding because somebody had offended the president and uh, he decided that the states should get it in a very selective way. Uh, and the bungling of of uh, of lockdowns, which he kept trying to um, lock up again. <laughs> so all of that, and the mask travesties in the early stages of the pandemic, as a result of which, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died who who shouldn't have.
0: Alex Gibney's Totally Under Control uh, opens Tuesday on. Amazon, Voodoo, Apple TV, and lots of other places. So if we want to watch something else after we've watched Alex Gibney's Totally Under Control, do you have another recommendation?
3: I do. Um, It's a a very wonderful documentary essay called Time, a very beautiful film that was made by the um, young director Garrett Bradley, Um, who's a woman, by the way, um, an African-American woman. She's made a bunch of films about um, black life uh, under incarceration. And this movie began as another film um, on that subject, Uh, She was making it in collaboration with a woman, a very wonderful woman named Sybil Richardson, who is known in in her activist and motivational speaking role as Fox Rich. Um, (laughs) And I'll say a bit more about her in a minute. Um, But the the director discovered that Fox Rich had a host of uh, black and white video diaries. She and her husband... Um, had made a very big mistake early on in their married life. That is, they robbed a bank. Nobody was injured, and, and um, but nonetheless, they robbed a bank. And as her mother, who is a very astringent presence in the movies, um, said, right, don't come to you doing wrong. <laughs> she was not happy with this. Um, the husband... Um, Rob was sent. Uh, Rob, his name is. Didn't occur to me. <laughs> uh, that was a pun. Was sentenced to 60 years um, without parole, which is a very stiff sentence for a bank robbery in which no one was hurt. And she, who was three months pregnant with twins um, when uh, he was sentenced, served seven years out of uh, 12 herself. Today, um, oh, she named her twins, they, they have other names, but she calls them Freedom and Justice, <laughs> which is spelt J-U-S-T-U-S, because she, she, the, the many years that she spent trying to get her husband out, they were just us. Yes. Um, and uh, so the video diary, she built the film, Bradley built the film around the family's video diaries, which are pretty extraordinary. It's a portrait of a very strong, very patient, and very angry woman um, who's trying to negotiate all this while raising her children alone. Um, She now owns her own car dealership. And uh, she's also a extraordinary orator, we see um, footage of her speaking to other women whose husbands have been incarcerated. And she just has totally as the gift of the gab uh, in, this, in the best way. Um, she's highly intelligent. Um, so it's a film about uh, incarceration, but what makes it a, a documentary essay is that it's also a portrait of the daily lives in the Black community, of women in the Black community who are struggling uh, to make ends meet, you know, to, um, to, to keep their marriages alive. Um, there are mothers, there are wives, and so on. Um, Garrett Bradley was um, a student at UCLA, but she didn't feel like she was doing very well there. She came under the wing of the documentary filmmaker Billy Woodbury here in Los Angeles and became a, a, a part of his group, L.A. Rebellion, which was born during the Watts Uprising. However, I, it's very clear to me that she was very influenced by Charles Burnett's. He's another African-American filmmaker, Killer of Sheep, which is an extraordinary portrait of daily black life that was set in an abattoir. (laughs) It has the same beautiful kind of languorous atmospherics. It's a quiet film in in many ways. Um, You can see that film uh, either uh, at at Milestone Video, which is a wonderful um, indie video Outfit. You would have to buy it. Um, it's a special heritage legacy film at the Smith- Smithsonian. Uh, and uh, on the milestone site, you can also stream it on video. And I recommend that too. But so that the- is
0: Killer of Sheep. That's Killer uh, of Sheep, yeah. And where can we see Garrett Bradley's time
3: time will be in theaters october 9 i haven't had any uh, word on that but i'm assuming it's got to be limited i'm sure the budget was very small for this um, movie um, but it will be out on prime on amazon prime on october 16th and i want to add that the uh, the movie jumps around a lot in time so you see these twins as these two gorgeous little toddlers. um, And she's done a really fabulous job of raising them. One has just become a dentist, and we see him uh, put his white coat on and so on. It's actually extremely um, uplifting. And the other is also an extremely articulate, motivational speaker, and they're both absolutely beautiful young men. (laughs) So it has the feel, a very lived in feel, this, this movie, and I can't recommend it highly enough.
0: We have a little time left for one more one
3: more briefie yes. this is a film that's just come out on Netflix. Um, another documentary it's called Dick Johnson is Dead. Uh, it's directed by Kirsten uh, Johnson who uh, is a cinematographer who also made a film called Camera Person about her life as a as a camera person. Um, she has since turned direct uh, director and this is about her father who was a retired, is a retired psychiatrist and also a Seventh-day Adventist. Now that's an interesting factoid because uh, they don't drink and they don't dance, but this man, I can see why she adores her father so much because he's just a lovely, bouncy, easygoing, open-minded man who was in the early stages of Alzheimer uh, to which he lost his wife in the 1980s as well. Now she asked him, uh, she was thinking about moving him from Seattle where she grew up to live with her and her two children whose um, fathers live next door, so a very unorthodox family to start with, um, in her one-bedroom apartment in New York, and she wanted to make a film about his death. Really, this is a film about the progress of his illness, uh, which includes some fantasy sequences in which she sends him to heaven with all the things that he loves, and I don't want to preempt that. We see him lying in his own coffin, coffin and uh, we see a stuntman who looks just like him um, take a fatal fall on the street. They also, uh, the highlight of the movie is an advanced funeral because Dick Johnson, in fact, is not dead. In fact, today he's still alive. And he seems to enjoy it all. However, this was a little queasy making, not just the funeral, but the, the thing itself, because she asked him if he wanted to do all this And she says, he said yes. But there is uh, something about the fact that it's all out of his hands and in hers. It's very compelling viewing. It probably delayed the progress of his illness because he wasn't just sitting around in her apartment and probably delayed his death. Uh, And it's often very funny and he's a very fun guy. But still, there was something about the fact that of her orchestrating all of this that made me feel a little queasy.
0: So Dick Johnson is Dead is on Netflix now. We've also talked about Time, the video documentaries assembled by Garrett Bradley, the black woman in New Orleans trying to get her husband out of prison. That will be streaming on October 16th on Amazon Prime, and number one, Alex Gibney's Totally Under Control uh, opens Tuesday on Amazon, Vudu, Apple TV, and lots of other places. Ella Taylor, thanks so much for talking with us this week.
3: You are most welcome, John.
0: It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now we want to celebrate John Lennon on what would have been his 80th birthday. That's tomorrow, October 9th. And recall not only his music, but also his work to end the war in Vietnam and his plans to campaign to get young people to register to vote in the 1972 election, which led Richard Nixon to order him deported in 1972. Lennon had written the song that became the anthem of the anti-war movement. Of course, that was Give Peace a Chance, recorded in 1969 and sung at hundreds of anti-war events in the next few years and thousands in the decades since. But Lennon thought he should do more. He knew that music could be powerful but he also knew that to make it a real political force, it had to be linked to real political organizing. And he also knew celebrities had tremendous potential power to get the attention of young people and maybe move them to action. So after the Beatles broke up in 1969, after he teamed up with Yoko Ono, he decided to test the political potential of rock music of his music and the political potential he had as one of the most famous people in the world. He moved to New York with Yoko and teamed up with anti-war activists there, especially Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. And together they planned a nationwide concert tour that would come during the months before the 1972 election when Nixon would be running for re-election while the Vietnam War was still raging and where Democrats had finally nominated an anti-war candidate, George McGovern. It was also the first election in which 18-year-olds would be able to vote. Before that, it had been 21. And the big challenge for the anti-war movement was to get 18-year-olds to register to vote. The tour plan was to combine rock music with anti-war politics to include talks by anti-war leaders urging the audience to register to vote, and they would do voter registration right there in the concert hall. Seemed like a good plan. Richard Nixon found out about it and got the immigration service to begin deportation proceedings against Lenin to stop it. Lennon had to cancel the concert tour, and he spent the next several years in a legal battle in immigration court. Let him stay in the USA, we all said. The story of Nixon's campaign to silence Lenin as a voice of the anti-war movement is told, first of all, in the FBI files that document his activism. I sued the FBI back in the 80s to get those files with the help of the ACLU of Southern California. And after many years in court, we finally won. And I published a book about the whole thing. It's called Give Me Some Truth, The John Lennon FBI Files. More about that later in the show. But first, some rare audio. Interviews I did in the 80s to document the story of Lennon's engagement with the anti-war movement. First, Tom Hayden. Tom died in 2016. I spoke with him in the early eighties about John Lennon. Remember, the largest student strike in the history of the United States stopped everything on campuses. Many schools did not complete the semester in the spring of 1970. So they already thought they were looking at an imminent revolution uh, led by students and blacks. And then here comes uh, John Lennon to add his luster and lyrics to the uprising want to default. <laughs> It's an exciting and optimistic moment. And the most amazing thing of all is 48 hours later, John Sinclair gets out of jail, something no one thought would happen. So John and Yoko, Jerry and Abby, they're just feeling triumphant. Not only do they have a great concert, they got John Sinclair out of jail. It seems like at this moment, anything is possible. This is like a magical mystery tour has begun that somehow if John Lennon shows up, he so changes the equation that a man in prison is released. So you can imagine, uh, you know, with the addition of chemical substances, what this did to the yippie mind. The, you know, the possibilities were infinite. One of the two most important anti-war activists who work with Lenin was Abby Hoffman. He died in 1989. I spoke with him about Lenin earlier in the 80s. Uh,
4: John and Yoko did uh, come and look up myself and Jerry Rubin and uh, they wanted it known uh, uh, around the New York scene uh, that uh, they had political side to them. Uh, they, they were involved at that time Uh, with the defense of uh, someone named Michael X, sort of a Malcolm X-type person, a black nationalist, who was facing execution in in the West Indies at the hands of the British government, and uh, he was executed. But John and Yoko were very politically involved uh, uh, before they even got here. They had a lot more political consciousness uh, than just, say, the bed-ins or other things that they were kind of involved in that might appear a little flaky. He uh, he had quite a political consciousness, a sense of his roots. uh, Considered himself working class. Um, I had a place on the Lower East Side. They used to come over a lot. We used to go driving around, uh, you know, um, to uh, different restaurants and uh, Max's Kansas City. And uh, we we must have met at least a dozen times then, And, and we started to organize. Uh, demonstrations at the Republican Convention, which w- at that time was still in San Diego, and it was, uh, of course, all these conversations were monitored by the FBI and God knows who else, you know. Uh, and uh, it was these conversations that uh, got the uh, Immigration Service on John Lennon's back, and uh, you know, it's. I think it's uh, wise to remember that uh, for six years he was hounded, not just because of some pot possession charge. I mean, there's uh, probably 100, 200 people a week that walk and come into this country with much more, uh, you know, uh, many more charges, but because that he was po- political and was uh, forming alliances with radicals. That's the fame. The fame was just enormous. Enormous. I mean, I thanked immensely because I was I was really under the gun in those days. Uh, Walking the street, got a little perilous at times, and, uh, uh, fighting against the Vietnam War wasn't as popular as it is today, you know, in retrospect. But and I had this these, these, this firehouse that I lived next to on the Lower East Side, and the guys used to always rip me and everything, and I got a little nervous, you know, that you know at certain moments. But when I brought a beetle to see them, I mean, they just they <laughs> that was it, you know. I was clean from then on. I was one of them. They loved them.
0: Abby Hoffman. Interviewed in 1982, remembering life with John Lennon in New York City in 1972. Tomorrow, October 9th, would have been Lennon's 80th birthday. Today, we remember him.